information, but we don't know who you are. So please tell us your name and tell us where you're from. I am Carlene Goodridge, a.k.a. Lady Lemonade. <laughs> I am from Baltimore, Maryland, by way of Staten Island, New York, Park Hill, a.k.a. Killer Hill, <laughs> um, and of uh, Liberian lineage, West African, for sure. Definitely Liberian girl, proud. Mm, okay. Uh, what was it like growing up in uh, Park Hill? Oh, my gosh. Park Hill was interesting. I didn't go back. I was born in Park Hill, um, but ended up moving to Long Island, the suburbs of Long Island for my elementary school years, which was very interesting. Um, we were the only Black family that I can remember in the neighborhood, and the only other students of color in the school um, were my siblings. <laughs> so when we moved back to Park Hill in my early teen years, that was actually culture shock for me. Um, the only other Black folks that I had been around was my African family. So as far as I knew, Black folks were African and that's it. Like, you know, from Africa. So when I get to Park Hill, it was very interesting because I sounded a, a certain way, but I, you know, um, identified with a certain culture, um, dressed very differently than most of my schoolmates listen to very different music than most of my schoolmates. Um, so it was very interesting for me. Um, I think those were like my bully years. I had to learn to defend myself per se <laughs> during those years. You know, a lot of people, I love how there are so many folks these days that are interested and fascinated in learning their lineage and their history and proud of the Africans. But back then I'm 42 now. So those years, early nineties, the jokes were pretty bad back then. So those early years were rough. <laughs> I know a little bit about Long Island because I went to school in New England for a little bit. So okay. when you were in Long Island, like, was it like Amityville, Islip? Where exactly were you? It was, I believe it was like the Islip or Nassau. We were in Brentwood. So I went to Brentwood Elementary, um, Hemlock Elementary in Brentwood. Oh, okay. Yeah. So then, I don't know if it's changed now, but then. <laughs> completely different. Oh, yeah. Okay. Another follow-up question I have being from Park Hill and then going to Long Island in like the eighties and nineties, well, I guess really nineties, like on, mm -hmm. you know, in Staten Island, you had Wu-Tang and then oh, in like yes. Long Island, Amityville, there was De La Soul. So what was yeah. it like being from those two areas that have like some of the most memorable hip hop and rap groups of, of, of all time? So it's, for me, I think it's phenomenal now because I can acknowledge who and what Wu-Tang is to the culture, to the music industry, to people as a whole. I think then during those years, they were just the homies from around the block. You know, we knew them, we saw them hanging out. I lived off of Tarji Street. Um, so I actually, we lived in Park Hill, the buildings themselves for a while, but then we moved in with our grandmother who lived in a house right on the corner, right across from a gas, street, a gas station. So this strip on Tarji Street is kind of where everybody hung out. So even though I was in my house, right across the street, you'd see everyone. Um, you know, we'd hang out in the neighborhood. The barbershop that everybody hung out at was right across the street from my house. The bar that we weren't supposed to be at was right <laughs> across the street from my house. So for it took probably until my early 20s that I realized, oh, they're a big deal. Like they're known around the world. Because to me, they were just the guys from the neighborhood. <laughs> so it definitely took a long time. There's definitely honor and pride now knowing a lot of the guys and those that they helped bring into the industry and 
it's it's a it's a proud it's definitely a proud feeling with you growing up like you said you had those tough years of growing up in the 90s and being liberian while you thought that all blacks were just africans the black people definitely treated you a little bit differently but at home what was it like being brought up in liberian culture strict (laughs) (laughs) it was strict Um, i think there's a lot of things that i notice about my friends and the way they talk to the parents or the things they got away with um as opposed to what i could get away with or the things that i could do um but there was also a lot of love and respect um definitely around the kitchen around food in that sense especially when it came to like my mom my siblings Um, those years were actually better years than me than my younger years. Like, I think that's the time where I really learned to enjoy our food because now am I not only, I know the food, but now I can actually talk to other people in the neighborhoods. You know, there was an African store, the African Omas used to be in the neighborhood and they would cook, you know, you go get your grilled meat and your, your, your grilled uh, snapper and your dry rice and your fried pepper chicken. So that was, that I think I loved that side of it because I would hear more of the accents I knew at home outside in the streets walking by. That's the other thing with Park Hill. That was LA. We called it Little Africa. We had so many that migrated from um, West Africa, especially Liberia in the 90s after the Civil War. It was good to step outside of my house and hear the language of my mother and my grandmother that I heard in the house only, now to now hear it outside of that, outside of the home. It was more familiar to see more people, to see more people dressed the way my mom did, you know, having a lapa on or having the African print wasn't a trend. That was just the way we dressed. When you were growing up, did you ever go back or visit Liberia after the Civil War? Or was it something that you didn't get a chance to do until you were older, if at all? Yeah. yeah, As a matter of fact, I haven't gotten the chance to do it since I was very small um, because of the Civil War. So we ended up moving in with our grandmother because the Civil War started. Living on Long Island, we weren't supposed to be moving to Staten Island. There was actually going to be moving to Liberia. Um, That's All our stuff got sent there. My father went there to get our house ready. um, And then he got stuck there. And we in a sense, got stuck in the U.S. because we could not go. Um, That was actually the plan. I was so excited. I I remember being so excited. I remember the stupid questions I would get about going to live with zebras and lions (laughs) because I bragged so much. It was definitely a brag. I'm moving to Africa. I'm moving to Liberia. Then the Civil War happened, so we never got the chance to go. My father got stuck there for many years. I think I was just entering junior high school, and it wasn't until I graduated junior high school that he that he returned. Did he have any stories of his time in Liberia? Boy, did he. As a matter of fact, when we first went to go pick him up from the airport, we all walked right past him, did not recognize him um, because of starvation, because of the the lack of food there during that time. There was a time where he says a bag of rice is what saved him. He uh, was reaching for a bag of rice. And when he turned, there was a bullet in the tree that he was just standing in front of. I mean, it was rough, rough times there. Like when people talk about war, there were children who were my age at the time who were picking up arms. It was just a rough time. A lot of the stories we heard and images that did make it back this way was absolutely terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And for me, it was, I didn't understand it because that's not the country I knew. That's not the country I heard my family talk about. Like there was this pride in... (laughs) 
going to Liberia. Like I'm going to, like there was this love of this beautiful, beautiful country. Um, but because of cultural differences, because of um, what I would say simply put is a class scale, um, racism in a sense, the country was torn apart. People were fighting amongst each other. And um, as I learn more now, it really comes from America of Liberians versus native Liberians or natives of the land. If you even want, you know, you know, Liberia was not always Liberia. Yeah, exactly. I uh, I interviewed uh, Bilfina Yawan a while back, and she was explaining to me everything that happened in the in the war. So my next question for you, and I know we're getting like away from the question list, but uh, I'm curious after the war, and I guess as you got older and really learned what it was about, did you ever have any type of uh, animosity towards Black Americans despite growing up in America because of the the turmoil that was happening in your ancestral land? No, I didn't have any, um, not in that way. I think for me, the one thing I can say I'm grateful for is just an understanding of people and your ignorance is your ignorance until you know better. Um, so I don't think I ever had any ill will or viewed people as a whole in that, in that way for those reasons. I think I think now I'm actually trying to get a better understanding of people were free, like you were free, men and women, and I'm trying to understand the mindset that you went and did exactly what was done to you. That's what I find so interesting. I think sometimes we think when you know better, you do better, but that's not what happened. So I think I'm like puzzled. There are so many books I have. I wish I could remember the names of them now, but I just want to dive deeper in understanding why <laughs> why like yeah. you were set free but then you put others in bondage in, in a sense yeah it's definitely tough and it's one of those questions where you can still get an answer and you're like but that that doesn't really put me at ease or really give me the closure yeah that, um that I'm looking for growing up a lot of chefs and culinary professionals, they have that same story because their parents were foreign or, or they were foreign or, and mm -hmm. came over to the States. And food is the way that they were able to reconnect with their yeah. culture and their homeland. Uh, for you, um, where do you draw your culinary inspiration from? It's definitely, there's actually two places I draw my culinary inspiration from. One is therapy in a sense. I think about times in my life where I did not have you know, I went through this roller coaster of life of having, and then into adulthood, it was this roller coaster of having and not having. Um, and, you know, we communicate, we commune around food. You know, <laughs> you just, that's what we, we naturally do, we commune around food. And there were those times where I could not go out, I just couldn't afford it. But because I was probably on public assistance, I could afford to fill my fridge, thank goodness. So my thing, very, um, I try to, I'm trying to think of a word of how I would describe it. I basically convinced my fellows, my friends to stay in because I'm cooking for you. <laughs> <laughs> because that made more sense to me than going and spending the cash that I needed for other things to go and get food. Mm -hmm. um, and it became a love. It became this love of how can I make that better? Or a friend took me out to eat. What did we eat? Can I recreate that at home? And then in my later years, it became a desire to understand food and nutrients and seeing 
where food was going and seeing um, food products becoming more dominant than actual food. So that love of cooking got turned into an understanding of and a desire to understand nutrition along with food. You know, get rid of that stereotype that healthy food isn't good. And it just came back to knowing and understanding real food, knowing and understanding the food that comes out of the ground, um, as opposed to the stuff that's boxed that was chemically processed so that it can be convenient for us to cook. Mm-hmm. And now the inspiration definitely comes from the desire for accountability to self culturally here in the States as a black woman and culturally as a, a Liberian American woman. Now food has become my accountability to self. Growing up in Long Island and having not that great of an experience with community in going back to Staten Island, I always had the jokes of you sound like a white girl or you sound white or why are you trying to act white? That took a hold of me up until about right before I moved to Baltimore four years ago. You know, when I look at my Facebook page, I look at who I did community with and who it was easier for me to identify with. And it was safety. And it was one day that my middle son, Eden, I call him my chocolate chip. While I have four children, three of them are light-skinned, fairer in tone, and then Eden's my chocolate chip, my twin. And one day he said to me, went to a friend's house, and he said, oh my gosh, mama, they're all brown like me. That floored me. Because here I am thinking I'm being so diverse, raising my children, and I was eliminating them from a whole culture of people who they could identify with. Mm-hmm. And I had to take responsibility for that. You know, there was a comfort in hanging out with one community versus another because of things that happened growing up. And I had to let go of that because I was denying my children understanding of themselves and preparing them for this very real world especially having three boys who were growing up to be three black men. Yeah. So somehow I tied <laughs> understanding of food <laughs> with accountability. And that came back and that brought me back to not only are you a black woman, say it out loud, because I never used to say that out loud. Um, I just always want to be a woman. I'm Carlene. Why do I have to be a black woman? I didn't understand the power that came with understanding that. Um, and now to understand heritage and lineage as well. So food now is accountability and that's where I draw that inspiration from. That was an incredible answer. (laughs) (laughs) That was, that was really like just amazing. Uh, I can only assume that you were really learning to cook when you were younger, uh, as you have said, and, you know, as my, uh, as I see, like for my wife, my wife's Nigerian and cooking is a big thing for her as well. And it connects her to culture. Um, When you were cooking in high school, were you, kind of apprehensive to show any of the food to your friends or were you just like look this is what it is y'all gonna have to eat it yeah I definitely was I think that's when I started gearing away from African food it was I'm gonna learn how to make a a London broil I'm gonna learn how to make spaghetti you know like that's where all those other foods that I know how to cook and I'm proud of making came into play because when they came to my house, what was being served up was African food, Liberian dishes. So let me make spaghetti for you. Let me make mac and cheese for you. Let me hook that up for you. 
Okay. Um, oh, my thing was peanut butter cookies. Let me tell you, we used to get, <laughs> we used to get, you know, the government cans of peanut butter. I swear to this day, I wish I could get one of those cans. <laughs> I used to swear they made the best peanut butter cookies. <laughs> I was proud of those peanut butter cookies. <laughs> <laughs> what did you, um, what did you do after high school? Ooh, man, that was a journey. So I, um, I dropped out of high school probably about a month before graduation. It was, it was probably the most pathetic dropout story ever. Oh, <laughs> a month, I had all my credits. I had actually more than enough credits to graduate. Um, but at that time in my life, my father had came back into my life. Um, I don't talk about it as much, but I had a really rough upbringing when it comes to my dad. Um, my sister and I both were victim to, to him. And he came back into my life and I had to leave. So I left New York. I left New York. I didn't want to be anywhere near him. I didn't want to take the risk of what happened in my childhood with him to be happening again. Um, so I left. I went to Philly. I lived in Philly for a while. It was amazing because I was living on my own for the first time in my life. Um, then winter came and the most pathetic, I wouldn't say pathetic, the most adventurous reason for moving across the country came and it was the storm of 1996. Yeah. And I <laughs> and I moved to California <laughs> there, um, and I, I loved it. I loved it. I went cross country. I lived in California for a while. You know, my early years, right after high school, was just me kind of finding myself. It definitely was me finding myself, and I don't think it really happened until I came back and um, at the age of nineteen found that I was going to be a mom for the first time. Wow. And I ended up back in New York and uh, started a business and became a mama and reconnected with my mom. Yeah, I was a mom very early on. I think I was 20 when I actually had my daughter. Um, but it was something that I needed because I definitely had a habit for many years, even up until I probably had my fourth child, of running away from things in life. Hmm. So, but having my children kind of put me in a different, put me on a different path for sure. I've heard that a lot, and it's something that I'm actually curious about myself uh, because I was raised by a single mother, but I've heard stories of people who they might have uh, disagreements or they just might outright not like that one of their parents or have grown up without one, like if, if they died or something like that. And then they say that like, they kind of felt like they had a piece of them that was missing but then that peace got filled once they had their child. Did you, did you feel that way? I did, but the way that came was through relationship with my mother. That's where that peace came in because my mother defended me. And I have to say for clarity and for understanding, she was my stepmother. She married my father. I wasn't raised with by my biological mother, but she protected me for so many years, even when I didn't realize she was protecting me. And when I first left and found out I was pregnant, I literally left. That was one of those moments that I ran away. I didn't tell her. She didn't know. She didn't see me during my pregnancy. Um, her sister, my auntie, forced me to come and see her Christmas about a month after I had my daughter. It was about six weeks after I had my daughter. Um, and said, you need to take her to go see her grandma. And I went to my mom's house, peeked into her bedroom. And I said, Merry Christmas, mom. And she said, what did you think I was going to do? Pull you through the phone and kill you? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I 
was young. I was unmarried. I had dropped out of high school. There were so many things that I felt I did wrong that I didn't want this to be another disappointment. I had this, this perception of who she was to me. There was definitely love, but because of the strictness, I didn't see the love fully. The next words to her was, where's my grandbaby? That filled, that, 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 those words filled me with all the doubt I didn't realize I had. So that for me was definitely the filler. That was definitely the filler because I had the perception that my mom didn't really care about me. And she always did. She just had a different way of showing it. And it wasn't wrong. You know, kids, we think the strictness, we don't see it as love as children. So at this point, you're in your early 20s, you have um, reconnected with your mom and you're, you're building on your relationship from there. At what point did you go into the armed forces? Ooh, I was 28. So this is um, Daniel. I had now had my second child. I have just had my third child, Eden. Um, and I had lost my mom the year before. She had a battle with cancer and lost her battle, um, lung cancer. And I just went through a lot that was lost. There was that, that I told you, there was a void that was filled. And when I lost her, there was lost, especially because the way I looked at it was my birth mother is still alive and my father is still alive. But the woman who has saved me in so many different ways is now gone. So I went through a time of, uh, depression for a little bit after I had Eden. Eden was my third child. I wasn't married. I didn't quite have it all together. And I ended up homeless. I ended up in the shelter. At the same time, I also found God. So there was this positive, negative happening. There was this joyous side, but this depression that was still happening. Mm -hmm. And so I came into terms of realizing I've got to get it together. I came into terms of saying out loud for the first time, because it was a secret of mine, that I was a high school dropout. So I needed to get my GED. I needed to go to college. I wasn't even really thinking college that, at that point, but I was thinking at least get my GED. Mm-hmm. And it was my professor who led the GED course, who guided me to another course. Oh gosh, well, I can't remember the name of it. A legal assistance course. I took that course and ended up deciding I wanted to go to college. But then I was like, how the heck am I going to pay for it? Mm-hmm. Literally the day I asked that question, I saw the flyer that says, want to go to college? Join the army. Talk about a message. <laughs> I really fell for that poster. <laughs> but that's when I joined. That's when I joined the army. Um, my kids stayed with a cousin of mine while I went off to boot camp for six months. She moved into my house, took care of my babies, and yeah, became a logistics specialist in the United States Army. When you were in the Army, were you able to continue cooking or or share your cooking? Oh, yes. What was that like? (laughs) That was phenomenal. So at this point, I realized that cooking became my love language. That definitely is something. That's how I express myself. That was my comfort bumper around people. Um, still is to this day, if there was an opportunity. I even did it when I was in the shelter when I was homeless. So it just became something that I did. As I left basic training and joined my unit, if there was an opportunity to cook, I was there. Holidays, oh, I'll do, you need five turkeys? I've got you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 10 pans of mac and cheese? I'm there. Cupcakes, cakes? I'm there. 
So in my early years, it was just something that I did, especially when the unit we worked with, we worked with the Joint Task Force. So in New York City, which is where I was based out of, our weekends, we changed up our mission and weekends. It's kind of like a day off. And I was, I was manning the grill. When I moved to Texas and changed units, it's how my business got started. It's one of the, it's one of the, it was the jump off that helped my business get started. I used to cook for my unit on drill weekends. I would make breakfast tacos and burritos in the morning. Every now and then I was doing the burgers. I started catering and they were one of my first clients, the armories, the local, local armories throughout the city would order lunch for me. I loved it. I loved it because I loved cooking anyway. And here I am now monetizing it, not like it was ever a true plan. I found my way there. But I got to say that was one of the, actually the great side of the military. It was my experience in learning how to cook for so many people. <laughs> Going from like family meals to like literally feeding hundreds. That was going to be a question I had as well. <laughs> is, did any of your training, any of your time in the military help you with um, building your business and where you are today? It definitely did. And I didn't realize, I don't think I ever really realized it until I start speaking about it because it was like, okay, no, you're not just cooking for, you know, a few folks. This is like hundreds beyond hundreds at a time. So that definitely helped propel me from taking, you know, small events to being able to handle larger events when I was doing catering on that full scale. And when you started your business while you were in the armed forces, was that the business that you are so locally famous for today? No, um, back then when I started it, it was uh, called Nos Redna. Um, it was um, Nos Redna Boutique Catering Company. I was married, previously married for a short while, and my last name was Anderson. Um, so Nos Redna is Anderson backwards. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. I, was like, I was like, where, where what is what that? Is, yes, what is that? So we used to say that reflects good business. We reflect good business. Oh, that's clever. <laughs> um, yeah, I love, I love the marketing. Um, I did love the marketing. Um, and we had started baking baked goods and then we started catering. We got in a food truck. We started the lemonade stand. A lot happened in a few short years. And with that, a failed marriage. Um, and so that's where the rebranding of Most Redneck to Lemonade came in because I didn't want to keep the name. I wasn't keeping the name for myself. I sure as heck didn't want to keep it for my business. That's where Lemonade came from, the switch up. <laughs> and let's talk about Lemonade now. Um, in addition to wanting to change the name from the catering company, uh, in my research, you also named it that because it's it's how your son would pronounce it when he, when he was asking for it. Yes. Um, my <laughs> talk to me a little bit more about starting lemonade and does the citrus fruit or the drink have a uh, special place in your heart because because when you when you see kids like kids have a lemonade stand in the summertime and as an adult you're like you probably sell more if it was just water because lemonade uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. kind of makes you more thirsty uh so explain <laughs> to me like why did you choose lemonade what is it about lemonade that really gets you passionate for so many reasons. I think going back to early, you know, being an early mom, my first child, my daughter had a lot of food allergies. And so being into food and understanding food, we started, we stopped buying a lot of juices. So we started making more lemonades, um, using honey. Um, I think back then, very early on, we were learning about agave or coconut sugar, but we would just make lemonade. It was something fun to do. It was different drinks for her. 
So that's kind of stuck with me, but with my kids, just making, making lemonade. So when it came to the catering company, being in Texas, you know, people, sweet tea, sweet tea, sweet tea. Mm-hmm. That's what they wanted. And I was never really a big sweet tea fan. I mean, I was raised in New York. I don't know if that's, uh, for me, I always put it as a Southern thing. I didn't really get it, the love of it. I was like, lemonade, come on, what's with y'all? <laughs> so I would, <laughs> I would give away the lemonade. If you ordered food, you would get like a gallon of lemonade and I would just get crazy with the flavor. So if I was making jerk chicken, you're probably going to get a mango coconut lemonade. And so we had a lot of fun because I was always so already so used to having fun with lemonades and switching them up. We really embraced it with the catering company. And then the first year in the catering company, I failed to think about what the summer would look like. You know, we started around the holidays. So our calendar was booked. But mm-hmm. here comes the summer and it's weddings. But you your weddings probably got to be booked a whole year before. Mm-hmm. So we were down and out. So it's the summertime. It's like, wait a second, sell the lemonade. So we started a lemonade stand. By the time we launched our food truck a few months later, our lemonade literally would outsell our food. People now knew us for our lemonade. So it was a natural transition into naming the company that. And I didn't want to name it Lemonade. And, you know, with Eli, mommy could have Monade, Monade, Monade. So we named it Laid Monade. And it became Lemonade if you're bougie because my kids, you know, they made fun of me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bougie, according to them. So it's, I always say it's lemonade or lemonade if you're bougie. It was a natural transition. It really was. It really was. Yes, we love great food, but there was just so much fun in having all these different lemonades. And it was something unexpected. We went, we'd sell anywhere from gallons, you know, people would buy gallons of it. They would get cups at different pop-ups that we would do. We'd do like all the holiday, um, summertime markets and fairs. Um, we would do beverage catering, so people would actually come in, we'd make cocktails with them. So it was just a very interesting, unexpected turn for the company. And it was great because as we, as I had to, had to start slowing other things down, we were able to ramp things up with Lemonade, the food product itself, and not the cafe, mm. and not the catering company. And I didn't even know things were just being lined up purpose, very purposefully. Did you ever have any type of trepidation when you realized you had to slow that other stuff down? Because it seems like you're just always on the go, always on to the next thing. Was there ever a time where you're like, this is working out, but like, I'm kind of freaked out because like stuff doesn't work out. So what's going on? What was that like for yeah. you? That was, um, I'm, I'm very appreciative of it. Um, because that's how I ended up in Baltimore. Like when the universe wanted to tell me to slow down, they stopped me in my tracks. Mm-hmm. Like I was literally, I had a mini stroke. I was literally stopped in my tracks. Oh, wow. And that forced me to rest, but it's exactly what I needed because I realized the catering was too much. The cafe was too much. The food truck was too much. I had military every, you know, one week at a month. Sometimes it seemed like more because I would take on extra stuff. I was homeschooling my kids. I was going through divorce. And then throughout this country, black men were being attacked. And I was a part of an amazing church group. And I started realizing some of the questions friends would ask. Like they didn't understand what was happening with the black community. And supposedly I was supposed to answer all those questions. But what what that did was made me realize 
as amazing as it's been in one side, the more important side is not amazing enough. And I need to rest and my boys need to see better. They need to see understanding. And the shift, the shift came. And it was good because instead of bringing to Baltimore a catering company or this or that or this, we just brought our lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> like literally, and I think that's where that whole um, the proverb sits with me. When life gives you hope, you make lemonade. It's definitely special to me because that's what life has been. I've been handed so many different types of lemons and I have no choice but to go ahead and make lemonade. And my lemonade's not always going to look the same. You know, there are going to be different ingredients that are handed to you. And that's, that's, that's very reflecting of life in general for almost everyone. Mm -hmm. um, I was just able to take it and make a product with it. <laughs> <laughs> so as we talk about your journey and your journey with food, as you've already mentioned, from a very young age, you were cooking, even as you moved away from your culinary roots in high school, uh, as you got older, you came back to them, you started uh, Lemonade and another uh, concept and I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing this wrong, was mm -hmm. Kobo? Was, is that, is Kobo, that yes, Kobo. Kobo. Can you talk to me about that? And, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask if you're going to be doing it anytime soon because when my wife found out I was interviewing you, she was like, I don't care what else you ask her. Ask her when, she, when she's doing another <laughs> one of those pop-ups. So yes, Kobo, um, now finally named Kobo two years ago. It started off plated by Lemonade. Um, was a desire for many years to serve Liberian-inspired and led traditional Liberian food to the masses. I love cooking. I do love cooking, but, you know, my favorite, favorite food to eat is definitely going to be Liberian food. It's definitely going to be West African food. Um, and to not be cooking, it just seemed wrong, you know, outside of my home. Like, that was, you know, my kids know it's party time if we're cooking Liberian food at home. So it was like, why not? take the, I mean, that's what I do. Why not take it out there? Um, so the name Kobo comes from a saying in Liberia, you know, um, what are you going to eat today? Kobo, cold bowl, leftovers. You know, you're heating up your Kobo, you're heating up the food from yesterday. You know, if you ever think about, I tell everybody the way I explain it to have an understanding, you make spaghetti sauce today, put it in the fridge and heat it up. For some reason, it tastes even better the next day. <laughs> you know, that's just, it's a Kobo for me really is just a, that's the nostalgic feel of great food, that nostalgic feel of what it does, what it means, what it represents, how you identify with it. Um, Kobo is just my, like I said before, it's my accountability to self culturally um, and respectfully. That's really what it is. And I enjoy sharing it with folks. So yes, of course I make it traditionally, but I also definitely turn those dishes into what librarians would say is queen. <laughs> queen being uh, westernized, you know, American. And it's not to serve an American palate. It's really to serve the culinary, the culinary creative in me. We have all these ingredients. You don't always have to put it together A, B, C way. You know, get X, get Y, get Z, mix it all up. <laughs> That's definitely what I really enjoy the most is having fun with mm. um, that food. I had to take a step back a while, personally for health reasons and of course COVID, but I um, am happy to say, and I think it's the first time I'm saying that loud, Kobo will be making a return um, for sure. 
this spring. <laughs> awesome, awesome. That's and fantastic. And we will, yeah, we definitely will be announcing the details for that soon. After everything that you've been through and everything that you continue to do, do you find a correlation between freedom and entrepreneurship? Oh my goodness, absolutely. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. I think sometimes I'm very surprised that I was in the corporate world. I'm very surprised that I was in the military. And maybe that's just where I needed to be in those years of my life. But when it comes to entrepreneurship and freedom, um, you know, we were taught a certain cycle, right? You go to school, you go to college, you get a job. And very rarely is it taught the other way. Very rarely is anything outside of that norm that cycle, that train, mm -hmm. that rat race is taught. And it's not, I'm not saying it as a negative. For me, the positive is sometimes you don't realize how much creativity you have going on in your, in your own mind. And the opportunity to be able to live that is phenomenal. It's definitely phenomenal. I think for a while I used to have a profile pic that says, I'm too creative for a nine to five. <laughs> um, there's just a beautiful freedom in being able to create and make a living doing that. Yeah, that, that, that definitely is, yeah. I can imagine, and something that a lot of us uh, strive for. I'm just, I'm just waiting on the day where I can just podcast for a living, but uh, until then, I'm having a great time doing this, sitting yes. here, talking with you. Um, yeah. I truly do enjoy it. We're going to start wrapping up here. First, I do want to thank you again so much. And I'm probably going to thank you like three or four more times. So <laughs> get ready for it. Uh, but these two questions I always ask my guests. First, what do you have coming up next? And second, how can people find you if they want to contact you or just learn more about you? Of course, because I'm inaudibly making some pop-ups again this <laughs> spring and summer. So we're looking forward to that, heading up some farmer's markets. And Cobol is coming back in an absolutely amazing way. And I am so, so excited to announce it. Yeah. Awesome. That's great. And how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Definitely hit up Lemonade um, or, um, Car as a matter of fact, hit up Carlene underscore Goodrich on IG. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> awesome. Well, Lady Lemonade, Miss Carlene Goodrich. <laughs> Again, thank you so much for the opportunity to sit down and talk with you. I truly appreciate it. I appreciate you reaching out to do so. Thank you so much. And keep it going. I want to see you doing this full time for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.